Okay. I think we got enough time. Jack is back and Jerry, so we'll turn to Mark chapter 14. We're on the last section of uh, the chapter. <coughs> and, of course, we'll have chapter 15 and 16 to go. I'm sorry it's been a slow go. I've been out so much, and I don't know what's coming up here really in the next week or so either, so I may be missing again uh, once they get this procedure rolling here to replace this heart valve. Um, it's, it's supposed to be very uh, minimally invasive, you know, by doing it like you do a stent. Just go in through your neck and go down here and blow the balloon up. The valve stays there. They release the balloon and pull it out. Uh, it takes about two hours, but it took me about five seconds to tell you how they do it. But um, anyway, I don't know how that's going to go. So um, I'll, as soon as I know something, I'll let you know what's going to happen there. Okay, now we're coming to the end of this chapter. And we're look, we're, it's just a few verses, and I decided to keep it short. I don't want to you know, go flying into chapter 15. Uh, just yet. So, <clears throat> and of course, this is a long, a long chapter with 72 verses, though it's not the longest in the New Testament. Up to this point, previously, we saw Mark recounting the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. We saw his arrest when they delivered him to Pilate or excuse me, not the Pilate, but to the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, and so on. And finally, the trial. And in the trial, we saw that there was an effort on the part of the chief priest to find witnesses who would testify against Jesus. And they couldn't find any. That is, anybody who could testify and have their testimony agree with each other. And that would have taken the chief priest and the Sanhedrin off the hook. But it didn't work. So right in the midst of his frustration there, we noted that <coughs> he stepped in, in verse 61, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ? And in doing this, he put him under oath. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus dutifully answered, I am. Now it's important, and we'll see why in, in a little bit, I think uh, what the implications of this is compared to Peter. But he says, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, of course, that was another indication of an acclaim for his deity because there would be no other being who could make such a claim like this. And so finally then in verse 63, it says the high priest tore his clothes. And then in verse 64, he says, you have heard the blasphemy. Well, of course, that was an indication that the high priest understood exactly what Jesus was saying and who he was making a claim to be. And to him, it was blasphemy. And so finally then, we come down now to you know, they, they beat Jesus, smacked him around, spit on him. And it wasn't the chief priest that did that. It says they turned him over to the officers. 
and they struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, we remember that they were at the palace of the chief priest. It would have been a pretty substantial building, being the chief priest. And if you have ever seen a picture of housing in the Middle East, you might remember that they were basically you know, rooms going in a square or a rectangle, and then the middle was open to the sky. I mean, it was a courtyard. <coughs> and being in there, we find now another scene that's going on while this trial of Jesus is taking place. And, of course, that has to do here with Peter and his denial of Jesus. So you need to keep in mind that this is not a sequential event here. These are going on at the same time. They're in here, the chief priests, interrogating Jesus, and out here there's a whole other thing going on with the apostle. So look at verse 66. It says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean also, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, and then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now let's just pray for a moment. Father, we do want to take to heart these words and to understand the situation that Peter was in and the challenge that came upon him in a very, very difficult situation. Now give us clarity of mind and thought. Let us set our hearts on heaven to worship the God of heaven and your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, over in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, it tells us there when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, it said he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I the son of man am? And you remember that incident when this took place and they answered and said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And in verse 15, it says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That was who Jesus was really concerned about, his own disciples. Who do you say that I am? And you remember the great confession then that Peter made on behalf, I think, of all the disciples except one. Thou art the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the anointed one. You're the one we've been looking for for centuries, waiting on to come. And you're him. Now, that was a monumental confession on the part of Peter 
and the disciples. Now, with that in mind, go back in chapter 14 and look at verse 47 at this guy, Peter. It says there, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That same guy that confessed Jesus to being the Christ. Look down at verse 50. When they came to arrest Jesus, then it says they all forsook him and fled. Peter ran away along with all the other disciples. This one who had confessed Jesus to being the Christ. And then if you look down at verse 54, it says, but Peter followed him, but at a distance. He didn't want to get too close. And we, if you remember from last week, Matthew's account says that he was, or excuse me, Luke, he wanted to follow him because he wanted to see what the end was going to be. In other words, this one that they had waited centuries for, and this one that had, he had confessed to be that one, the Messiah, the Christ, has now been arrested. What's going to happen by the religious authorities nonetheless? What's going to happen to him? And so Peter got up his courage to follow. And then finally we see Peter denying Christ these three times. Those who study psychology and the temperaments tell us that Peter was something of a choleric <coughs> because of actions like this. On one hand, he's fully devoted to Christ, and, and then here you see all these, you know, here, up here he's fighting to defend Jesus, knocking the guy's ear off, or at least a part of it, and then running away, and then turning around and following him back, then getting in the courtyard and, and just vehemently denying that he even knows Jesus. And that's what a cleric does. They're given over to wide swings of emotion from one side to the other, to up and down and so on. You know, they tend to make hasty decisions. They can be short-tempered and, oh, and sometimes they call, they can be good leaders though too, see. And in, in modern parlance, they call them alpha males. You know, like, like the alpha males of the wolf pack and so on. And just like all the other temperaments, you know, they have their pluses and they have their minuses. Well, this is Peter. Now, putting the scene back together again, we're at the palace of the high priest. These false witnesses have come in. They're not congruent with each other. They don't agree. Can't get anywhere. Finally, the high priest steps in. He does you know, what we just spoke of uh, regarding putting Jesus under oath. He made him swear. That's what oath is. Just like being in a court of law. I swear to tell the truth. You're under an oath. And that's what the high priest did in order to get Jesus to speak. And I think that's interesting that Jesus, when... Earlier, he had been totally calm and quiet and hadn't said a word, but now he answers. 
Now, it tells us in verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard. <coughs> now, the physical nature of them would have been maybe even something like this, you know, just a couple of steps. So the high priest and Jesus and those dealing with him were up on a higher level and then down low in the courtyard, a little lower place, and then they had a fire pit. Very popular thing today also. And it was a little cool there in the spring, being way up high on the mountain in Jerusalem. And so they were trying to keep warm. And it tells us there that <coughs> one of the servant girls, literally it's one of the slave girls of the high priest. She came, and in verse 67 it says, When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, notice a couple things there. She saw Peter, and she looked at him. Now, evidently, and I'm just surmising here, you know, they're gathered. You know, it's night. It's the middle of the early in the morning. Dead of night. They're gathered around the fire, and somehow the glow of the fire is illuminating Peter's face. And this slave girl recognizes him. It says she looked at him, or excuse me, she saw Peter. In other words, it's, it's a Greek word that just simply means she took observation. She noticed this guy standing there. And then it says she looked at him. A word meaning she stared at him, gazed upon him, pondered over who this guy was. And she said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when she said, you also, in English, you see the word you is at the beginning of the sentence. Well, in Greek it is too. And you know what that means. It's emphatic. Of all the people that were hanging around that little fire, she was nailing Peter. You were with Jesus. But you look at the next verse, he says, it says there in verse 68, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. Now his reply is, the word you is emphatic also. In other words, he directed his answer right straight back at her with an emphatic denial. You're accusing me and I'm telling you, no. I don't know the guy. He denied that he was with Jesus in the garden. <laughs> well, we find out from an, one of the other accounts that she had been in the garden. She had accompanied the crowd that had gone to arrest Jesus. You remember now, the chief priests, the scribes, and all them, the elders, they didn't go. They stayed back at the palace. They sent them out to go get Jesus and bring him back. So she had been there. That's how she recognized him. <clears throat> and he said, I neither know nor understand. I don't know him, and I don't even know what you're talking about. And he went out on the porch. Now, apparently, and again being down in the courtyard, somewhere along the way, if it was 
consistent, you know, if it wasn't on a hillside or something, he would have had to gone up some steps, gone out to the front, out towards the street, which there would have been, you know, a long portico there. So he went out on the porch. Now, why? Well, we can only surmise. It doesn't tell us, but you wonder, you wonder if he just wanted to get out of that situation. He didn't like the pressure he was under. And the rooster crowed. And there ain't no question about it. With the physical ear, he heard the rooster. But it didn't get him here. Not yet. That's coming. And so in verse 69, the slave girl saw him again. Again, did Peter turn around and go back into where the fire was? Or did she come out to the porch? Doesn't tell us. But whichever one it was, she was in Peter's face again. And so she said, and began to say to those who stood by. Now the implication is, is to me, is that Peter went back down by the fire because she said, in other words, the first accusation was her against Peter, Peter back to him denying it. Now it says, she said to those standing around, she was pulling them in and saying, this is one of them. One of them what? One of them that was with Jesus. One of his disciples. Verse 70 says and tells us he denied it again. (coughs) Well, that's number two. He denied it again, and a little later, a little later, I can't remember now, it was Luke. Luke's account says it was about an hour later. Mark just says a little later. So it was about an hour They're standing around again, and those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, those disciples, you who have been following Jesus. For you are a Galilean. Now, I don't know... The King James and the New King James leave a word out there, but in the Greek text, there's the word also. You are a Galilean also. In other words, the rest of you too. All of those who were followers of Jesus. Even Jesus had spent most of his time in Galilee. So they're accusing him. You're a Galilean also, and your speech shows it. So they had a particular way of saying things just like we do. You're a northerner, you're a southerner, you're a northeaster, you're from the east coast, you come from out west or whatever. You can identify people from where they live. Matter of fact, I remember watching a TV show one time and I was fascinated. This is many, many years ago. And they had several people come on and and talk. And this guy, he could identify what part, I mean, down to the state they were from just by the way they talked. And, the, and, of course, the kind, kinds of words they use, their vocabulary. It wasn't hard for them to know that Peter was a Galilean and that he didn't belong where he was. You also, 
wonder, well, how did he get into that courtyard? How did such a guy like him, a common fisherman, get into the palace of the high priest? Well, I think it was John's gospel that tells us you know, that John, who knew the high priest personally, came out, and remember he spoke to the servant girl and got Peter in. It's one of those things of it's who you know and got Peter in. Of course, he stood out like a sore thumb. He simply just did not belong there. And so he began to curse and swear. Now, this is an amazing, amazing thing there. You know, he began to curse and swear. What in the world was Peter doing cursing and swearing? Well, You know, he'd gotten backed into a corner. It was getting tight. They were identifying him, and they, he knew it. As a matter of fact, um, somewhere, oh, yeah, in John 18. It tells us over there in verse 26, it says, One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So it wasn't just the high priest slave girl. It was Malchus's relative, who was there also. Of course, Malchus was a slave. His relative was a slave. And they were all there in the same crowd. And he's testifying. I saw you there too. So then, you know, the net's getting pulled in on Peter. And he is panicking. And he says, it says there, he began to curse and to swear. Now that word curse is the familiar word that you and I know as anathema. Well, here it means to anathematize. In other words, he was pronouncing a curse on himself. It was as if Peter was saying, I am inviting God to put a divine curse on me if I'm not telling you the truth. Now, when you think of it that way, that lets you know just how low Peter got in his denial of Jesus. But not only that then, it says there that he swore. Well, now before I get to that, I want to share a couple other verses. Turn over to uh, Acts chapter 23. Let's just look at a couple places where this anathema is being used. <coughs> Acts chapter 23, and I've got it in my notes, but I'm going to turn over here as well. And verse, what is it? Acts 23, verse 12. Acts 23, 12 says, And when it was day... Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath or under a curse. In other words, well, you finish reading the verse saying, this is what the oath was, that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. In other words, God put us under a curse if we don't, Kill Paul before this day's over. And that gives you a little idea of how strong that word is. 
Notice down in verse 14, it says, Then came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath, a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, it was in the form of an oath. They made an oath that they were going to kill Paul. But the point of it is, is the word being used, anathema, means they were placing themselves under God to curse them if they didn't fulfill that oath before the end of the day. Of course, you and I know they didn't make it. And I don't know what the outcome of that was. I don't think the Bible tells us really any more uh, any further what was said. Romans chapter 9 and verse 3 to a very familiar verse. Paul, concerned about his countrymen and their lack of knowledge concerning Christ and their unwillingness to accept him, he says in verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, of course, you know, that sounds very devastating. And, and in all likelihood, it would be. Except in this case, you know, <coughs> Paul says, I wish that I could be accursed or I, I could place myself in such a situation. But you also need to know that here, Paul understood God's mercies. And the curse was not always, you know, like the end of the world kind of a thing. Let's look at maybe one more here. Um, uh, Luke, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians, and this, is, this I think for you and I is a very important one. For you and for me. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22. This is the end of the letter of Paul writing to Corinth. Verse 21 says, The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema <coughs> or accursed. And then after that, it's Maranatha, O Lord, come. If we do not love the Lord Jesus, how do we love him? How can we be sure that we are fulfilling this and really loving Jesus? Well, he just said, in one instance at least, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Now, we've been studying on Wednesday night with Jimmy Perry the ways of God, the paths of God, you know, the road that we are to walk on. And the things that we are, we haven't gotten there yet. I'm hoping I can get, we're trying to steer that way. The kinds of things that you need to find on that road that will assure you and I that if we are being obedient to those things, then we will have God's favor and his approval if we've done them. And so there is a specific road to walk. And as Jerry was reading those verses this morning about the tree of life, 
You might remember, as we've looked over and over in our study, he starts every study off with Genesis 3.24. That it, before the garden, there was a flaming sword guarding the way to the tree of life. There is a way. There is the way to the tree of life. There is a specific path to follow. And if we do not love the Lord Jesus, Paul's telling the Corinthians to shape up. Because if you don't, let him be accursed. Then he goes on, Peter says, I swear. I swear. Just like if you were in a court, swearing. Luke 173 the New King James translates it as an oath. And there it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 73, the oath which he, that is God, swore to our father Abraham. So my point here is, is that even God has sworn concerning the promise he made to Abraham, which ultimately trickles down to you and I, who have the same faith as Abraham will be beneficiaries of God fulfilling that oath that he took. Now you go on and it says down in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 17, uh, you have the same kind of a thought. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn, that is, which he had put himself under oath to, to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. And then another one, which I think you're probably familiar with in Hebrews chapter 3, that when he did call the children of Israel out of Egypt and they were progressing on their way to the promised land and they failed, he tells us there in Psalm 95, but also in Hebrews chapter 3, so I swore in my wrath. I swore in my anger that they would not enter into my rest. And so you put that verse with Paul's telling the Corinthians about loving the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you don't, let him be accursed. We can understand the danger we put ourselves in when we do not follow the Lord and walk obediently to him. That's the kind of thing that Peter was swearing to. He was swearing in no uncertain terms, I don't know Jesus. Well, as a matter of fact, let me get back here to uh, Mark chapter 14, because I want us to note another thing there. Notice what he says in um, uh, <coughs> um, yeah, in verse 71. Now, this is the third time now that he's denying but notice, I want you to notice the, the progression. It's, it's just building up like this. Notice what he says here. It's not just when she says, the slave girl said, you were with Jesus, and he denied it, saying, I, I don't know him. I don't really understand what you're talking about. And then the second time, she drew the others in by saying, well, this is one of them. And he denied it again. And then... In verse 71, he says, I do not know this man. 
Now you think about all the time that Jesus had, or excuse me, that Peter had spent with Jesus for the last three plus years, and he's not even willing to call him by his name. I don't know this man. Do you see how he's just distancing himself from Jesus? I don't know this man. And so finally then in verse 72, a second time, the rooster crowed. Well, Jesus heard that one with a physical ear too. He heard that rooster crow, but he also heard it crow right down here in his heart. He felt the pangs of guilt running right over him because it says, then he remembered the words of the Lord Jesus where he said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Oh, yeah. It finally sunk in. Everything began to come together regarding Peter and his denial of Jesus and what Jesus had told him earlier. You remember that? He told him earlier, you're going to deny me three times. And none of that had sunk in. I don't know this man. So consequently, those around that little fire that were accusing Peter of being one of them, and he says, I don't know this man. But all of a sudden, the conviction set in, and Peter said, oh, me, I do know this man. I do know him. Matter of fact, when it says the second time the the rooster crowed over in Luke's account, it says, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. I mean, it hit Peter like a brick wall. He knew immediately what had taken place. And he was still, still feeling the stabs in his conscience over what he had just done. And, of course, it says there, and when he thought about it, when he thought about it, he wept. It's an unusual word there. I didn't know that until I was studying for this, but it's an unusual word there when he thought about it. And a lot of disagreement over just exactly how to translate it. (laughs) But basically, it seems like he's saying there that Um, it's hard to say (laughs) I have a hard time putting in any kind of words what it means I can tell you a couple things here when he said um, he thought uh, excuse me when it says he he, well actually even before this and, and, of course, you've got to, again, go to one of the other accounts. You remember in Luke's gospel, again, at this very moment, these things are taking place. You remember it says, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter? Cause he, so you have to kind of fill in between the lines there that with, with Jesus looking at you the way he was looking at you, you know, I'm sure the conviction was there just instantaneously. 
What kind of a look was it? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us again. Was it a look of sorrow? Was it a look of, told you, Peter. Was it a look of love? Was he feeling compassion towards Peter? It doesn't tell us. You kind of fill in the blanks for yourself. But one thing it says, he wept. And all, well, it actually says, and when he thought about it, and he wept. Two verbs there, both imperfect tense, implying that he pondered this for a long time, and he cried for a very long time over what he had done. You know, when we read that verse and you come to the end of the chapter, I mean, it's just like, yeah, he thought about it and he wept. You know, it sounds like, well, he just cried and then it came to an end. No. The indication is and the implication is, is he cried and thought about what he had done for a long, long time. Now, what are we to make? What are we to come up? You know, what, what's our thoughts? What's the lesson for you and I for a guy like Peter in a situation like this? Because the interesting thing is here, you don't, you know, Peter's name isn't mentioned in, in, in the rest of the gospel until you come to the resurrection. He goes off the scene. But we also know that Peter came back and the Lord accepted Peter and received him. Matter of fact, also, in conjunction with this, you might remember over in Luke chapter 22, what did Jesus tell Peter one time? I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So my question is, is do you think Peter's faith failed him right here? Well, I would say based on the words of Jesus, no. Did his courage fail? I'd say most definitely. Most definitely. Did his loyalty fail? I'd say absolutely. Did his hope fail? I think so. Because they had hoped that he would establish the kingdom. And you remember when you come to the book of Acts, which would be just a short time later, about two months from right here, they asked Jesus that very question. You going to restore the kingdom now? I think Peter's hope at that point was crushed. But his faith didn't fail. He still maintained faith. And that's, a, that's the most awesome thing is I, when I think about that because you're, you know, here's, here's some guys that had spent over three years with Jesus. He discipled them and taught them and mentored them. And they fell into a great loving relationship with Jesus. And now all of a sudden, he's been arrested. And it won't be long as we look ahead, he's going to be killed. I, and, you know, and then it's, the Bible tells us, you know, they went back to fishing after that. You, you wonder, 
what was going on? What were they thinking about during all that time? And we spent three, over three years of our lives with this guy, and, and, you know, and we confessed him as the Christ. We believed that. Now he's gone. But Jesus didn't abandon them, and he didn't abandon Peter. And Peter's faith was restored. He faltered, but he didn't fail. Now that holds for you and I. At the crucial points of life when things hit us and we go through trials, and Peter went through a trial here. He went through a temptation. But in the midst of the temptation, his faith didn't fail. But he sure took a beating. And you and I can too. And some of you have been through some of those trials and you felt like you were beat on. But when you came through, your faith was still there, wasn't it? It didn't go anywhere. Your faith was still there. And Peter's faith was still there. He hasn't lost it. And I take courage in that. I look at that and I thought, man, for all the things I've been through, my faith is stronger than ever. I remember going through a very severe trial. It's been a long time ago. 30, over 30 years ago. And I, I really, I was so low. The only thing, and I didn't, I didn't understand Kingdom Truths at all then, 30 years ago. But the only thing I hung on to all that time was one word. I never gave up hope. And, it's, and I'm not saying it because something great about me. I don't know why it did. I just did. I never gave up hope. Well, before long, of course, God brought us through us. It was more than just me. It was Janet was obviously involved too. But it was mostly me. And God brought us through. And hope began to reef, you know, re, um, how do I want to say, reestablish itself, began to flourish, began to grow, began to blossom. Faith became stronger. And that's what God does when he works in us to make us what he wants us to be so that we can be strong disciples of his. It doesn't mean that we won't ever deny Jesus. And we may not blatantly, verbally, in a situation like this, deny Jesus the way Peter did, but we may deny him in other ways. And I hate to stop right now, but I'm just, I got about a minute. I'm going to use it. When you think about what, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> when Jesus said not one jot or tittle of the law will pass till all is fulfilled, and then he made mention of the fact that those who enter the kingdom, there would be some who would be considered great in the kingdom. Remember that? And some would be the least. Do you remember what qualified those to become great? It was those who kept the least commandments. The littlest ones. Now, 
I think most of us know that it's commonly asserted that there are, and the Jews taught that there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. That's a lot. And some of them were obviously ranked, considered greater than others. And the Jews did that. Um, you know, Jesus himself said, when they asked him what was the greatest commandment, he said, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and all thy strength. And then the second's like it, to love your neighbor as your first. That's pretty high priority. But that's the number one commandment. What would be the least one? Well, I don't know what Jesus would have said. <laughs> I really don't. He never said. But I know what the rabbi said. The Jewish teachers said, and I really am pulling this off the top of my head. I didn't plan this. So I'm just going to give you the gist of it because it's in Deuteronomy, but I can't remember where. But you remember the... Well, okay, do you remember the one about the, where when the, 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 uh, the nest falls out of the tree and, you know, you come along and you find it and you go, oh, there's some eggs there. And, and the mother hen's sitting on it. You remember what the law said to do? He said, you can take the eggs, but you let the mama go. Now, I do these, I was, I was telling them Wednesday night, I, I go to these crazy thoughts. When I'm reading, I'm, I, the, the best messages by far that I ever preach is when I'm just doing my devotions and meditating, and I mean, I'm rolling along. But I do some crazy things, too, and I was thinking, yeah, okay. I can imagine most of the preachers come along and say, yeah, look at these eggs. I'll throw a few grits in with them, and that'd make a good breakfast. Then the next guy comes along and says, aha, I see some fried chicken here, too. And he's going to take that moment here. But you see, Jesus said when, and we would think that would be so insignificant. A little bird with a few eggs, especially if it was like a wren or a sparrow or something like that. How insignificant. But Jesus said, you obey that one and you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The least of all the commandments. And so, when we talk about the way, and when we talk about faith and maintaining faith, when we talk about a, a guy like Peter here, who outwardly, it seems to us, lost it. Didn't really lose it. But faith was restored to a, a much greater extent than he ever dreamed. And when he saw Jesus after the resurrection, could you imagine what that did for him? I mean, to me, I'd have gone and doing a brow wiper. Whew. That little incident back there in the garden or in the courtyard at, at the high priest's house, that's behind me. So you and I can walk in a path just like this, but we need to be observant of even the least commandments, the little things of life that mean so much to Jesus. I was always perplexed for a well, I shouldn't say always. For a long time, I was perplexed about the phrases that, you know, when you read, I think it's in 1 John, about doing those things that please him. 
I didn't know what those things were. The things that please him. Well, now I know it's the little things. Oh, the big things are important too. Loving your neighbor and loving God. Well, what about the little things? Take care of the little things. You take care of those. And God's promise to you and me is he'll take care of us in his kingdom. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? You take care of the little things and obey those. And he'll take care of us. He swore that he would fulfill his promise to Abraham. And he'll fulfill it to you and I too. Let's pray. Father, we want to lift our hearts in praise and thanksgiving to the God of heaven, the God who loves us, the God who has saved us through your son, the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Father, that as we contemplate right here in the midst of the things going on in the life of Jesus and the life of Peter and the life of the other disciples even who went through these horrid events, and yet they proved themselves to be those things that strengthened their faith. And especially when they saw Jesus at his resurrection. Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon him. To know that he is alive. And that he's sitting at your right hand today. Just waiting for that coming day when he'll come to receive us back to himself. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.